The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, we are in 1 John chapter 5 today, so if you want to turn there, you can. We've got a couple more weeks in 1 John, or in 1 John then we go 2 John, 3 John, then look at the Easter story, and then through... Most of spring and summer, we'll be in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you want to read ahead, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, for quite a bit of this year. Well, T.S. Eliot, great poet, wrote in 1934, the endless cycle of idea and action, endless invention, endless experiment, brings knowledge of motion but not of stillness, knowledge of speech but not silence, Knowledge of words and ignorance of the word. All our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance and all our ignorance brings us nearer to death. But nearness to death, no nearer to God. Where is the life we have lost in living? John in the first century is writing to his readers to say life doesn't have to be lost in living. There's this great life that those who've been born of God are called to in Jesus. So John makes an argument throughout this book based on eyewitness testimony. And every assertion he makes is aiming toward this idea that people may believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing that they may have life in his name or stated another way, having Jesus is having life. And so when John talks about this life, he talks a lot about faith in God. He talks a lot about love for others, and he talks a lot about obedience, but he does this because he wants people to know having Jesus is having life. So today we're going to read 1 John 5, 1 through 12, and then talk about it and kind of frame each section in a question. Could you tell me about your family if you're born of God? Could you tell me what it means to overcome? And then do you believe these witnesses? So let's read 1 John 5, 1 through 12. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know we love the children of God. When we love God and obey His commandments... For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar because He has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning His Son. 
And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. God, we thank you, Lord, for this reality that those who believe that Jesus is the Christ have been born of you. And that those who believe Jesus is the Christ live in love with one another that is supernatural. Those who believe that Jesus is the Christ are those who overcome the world, and there's great testimony to this truth. So help us to believe that we might have life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, John just starts right off. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, has been is perfect tense. It has happened and it continues. It's rooted in the work of God. It's the idea of being born into a new family and it is for whoever believes. Whoever believes has life. That's this beautiful word that John wants to give these people. See, sometimes people think about Christianity and they think of Christianity being a religion of people who follow rules, who live boring lives, who ignore the realities of the brokenness of the world with just this sort of blind faith. But this couldn't be further from the truth. Christianity is a, a faith of new life, supernatural life. It's a faith of people who believe eyewitness testimony about the most amazing occurrence in history. And because of that, we have this gift of new humanity, a new way of living, of new life. It's this idea that God has done something in you that you could not do for you. God has done something in me that I could not do for me. When I thought about this, I thought about a couple who did something for some children they could not do for themselves. There's a guy named Marty Burbank and his wife, Sion, and Marty and Sion live in Fullerton, California, and Marty and Sion love boats. He was in the Navy, they met on a boat, he proposed to her on a boat, they got married on a boat, they've been really successful in life, and so when he turned 50, he had this grand plan that they were gonna buy a boat, a big boat. A 40-foot Catalina sailboat. They were going to sail and have a great time. But Marty heard a sermon at his church about serving. And he drove by almost every day, Rio Vista Elementary School. There was a person in his home group, Miss Ashton. She had a class there. So he began to volunteer with her class. His wife, Sion, began to volunteer with her class. And they fell in love with these kids. And as they would go in and out of the school, in one of the halls, there's college flags just draped down the hall and he would walk by those flags and look at those children and he knew the reality for most of these kids for where they grew up. Sion knew the reality for most of these kids where they were growing up, the families they were in, college was not in the cards for them. And so Marty and Sion said, instead of buying a boat, what we're gonna do is we're gonna give college to every kid in Miss Ashton's class. So in 2016, they did that. They went into the classroom and they said, we've got good news. You wanna to go to a state school, your college is paid for. You gotta do this, you gotta do this. Couple little rules, but we wanna give you a gift that you can't afford. Now I want you to hear the moral of this story is not like Marty and see, not be like Marty and Sion. It's not do these things. It's that 
that the Burbanks are really just a small, dim picture of this. God has done something in us we could not do for ourselves. He's done something for you and me we could not do for ourselves. He's put life in us that... Number one, we couldn't give ourselves. And number two, if we could, we couldn't afford what it cost. This is not a religion of rules. It's a gift of life. As one author says, we serve the God who throws a party for the prodigal, right? We serve the God who fills the wedding vats with wine. He looks at people who've labored all night and haven't caught a thing and he fills their nets with fish. This is the God of resurrection. So John says, everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Having Jesus is having life. But John doesn't say everyone is born of God, right? He doesn't say everyone has been born of God. He says everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ. And in the first century and in the 21st century, this is loaded with intention. There are at least four things I think John would say to this church and would say to us if we are to understand what it means to be born of God, that Jesus is the Christ. He is God's son. He's Israel's Messiah. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. There's a divine commission God had given to his people Israel to be a light to the nations. They failed miserably, but Jesus didn't fail. He was and is the light to the nations and through through his church now he shines as light to the nations as we share the gospel with them in Jesus all the messianic prophecies are fulfilled because he's the one Jesus is the Christ it also means that Jesus was fully human and fully God. He was born. He lived, tempted like you and me, but without sin. He lived, he was crucified, and he rose from the dead as a savior of all who believe. And then I, I think an extension of that is that what Jesus and his apostles believed about this word, we have to believe about this word if we've been born of God, that it has authority in our life, that this is the word of God. And then if Jesus is the Christ, in fact, he, is, he has authority over everything and he's Lord over all creation. So John invites these people to a personal but not private confession that Jesus, his master, savior, Lord, and Christ. And then he says, if you love God, you will love his people, right? Tell me about your family. Well, one of the distinctives is that everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Every family has distinctives, right? In my family, we know how to make mediocre coffee and we can fish okay. My, my kids did, did not draw the great straw there, right? Every family has distinctives. I thought about a couple of families that that when you see these families, you think of something, and the first is the Manning family, right? You got three generations of people who know how to throw a football and make lots of money, right? That's what the Mannings do. If you're at a carnival and you're in the Duncan booth, you see the Mannings coming with a football, run. They know how to throw footballs. You've got Archie, who was an NFL quarterback, all-star. You got Peyton, and you got Eli, great NFL quarterbacks. It's kind of hard to say great about Eli, but he's way better than me, right? Then you got Cooper, who's a really good athlete in his own right. His son, Archie, now, uh, I really hope, is a really good athlete. 
The distinctive is they know how to throw a football. There's another family, though. These are the Pointer Sisters, right? When I was a kid, the Pointer Sisters would would sing, and I got to be honest, when they would sing, I would just get so excited, I just couldn't hide it, right? <laughs> they know how to sing. That is not a distinctive of the Bowers family. In fact, true story, I was talking to my uncle about the first time I had opportunity to step into ministry, and he said, son, I want to tell you, I'm not sure how God might use you in the church, but I know he's not going to use you as a worship leader. <laughs> it's a great laugh, right? Not a family distinctive. John says, here's a distinctive of those who've been born of God and love the Father. It's that they love his children. They love his children. This family looks different because we've been born of God. In fact, the night before he died, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. This idea is prominent for John because it's prominent throughout the scripture. John alludes to us loving one another 18 times. 18 times. Well, how can we tell if we're loving those who've been born of him? How do we do this? He says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commands. And that's really helpful to know because there are ways that people define loving people that just go awry. Kind of two errors I see is you've got some who would say, well, we love people by telling them the truth, but all they want to do is tell the truth. And it doesn't really matter if they say it in a loving way, right? You, you've met this person, you've met this man or woman, right? If we love people, we got to tell them the truth. And you just get the warm fuzzies the way they talk about it, right? So Jesus said, this is how we know what great love is. In fact, there's nothing greater than you lay your life down for your friends. That's, that's the truth about what love looks like. But then there's also this error where we would say, well, we want to love people so we're never ever going to say anything that would offend them or cause a 180 to come about in their life. And I'll tell you, some of the dearest friends I have are people who've looked at me in love and said, Chase, you're headed the wrong direction. They've looked at me in love and said, hey, I hear what you're saying, but that doesn't sound much like Jesus. They've looked at me in love and asked hard questions. You're loving your wife well. You're shepherding your kids well. See, just like we don't want to speak truth harshly, we don't want to speak love kindly. Stated another way, love for others it's defined by, constrained by, and given boundaries by what it means to love God and obey his commands. And John tells us about his commands. He says, this is the love of God. This is the love of God inside us. This is how we know we've been born of God. This is how the love of God works itself out in us that the law is written on our hearts is the way one biblical author says it, right? But that we keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. His commands are not burdensome. Well, why does John keep saying, love God, love people and obey his commands? Why, why does he do that? He, he keeps saying that because people need to hear it over and over and over. John thought the church in the first century, and, and, and I think we as well, need to be reminded of this over and over and over. But also, he's doing it to combat a false teaching. 
See, there's this Gnosticism in the world that would say these commands don't matter because of what I know. Chase, you can say love people, but if you knew about them like I knew about them, if you knew the secret I knew, well, you know we don't really have to love them, right? Or it could be, well, no, 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 I know John said that in the first century, but really the scripture doesn't apply that way to us anymore. It's this sort of secret knowledge or Gnosticism. When John says, no, here's the love of God that we, we keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. I'll, I'll tell you, when I, when I read that, I don't know about you, but I'll just, just be honest with you that sometimes his commands feel burdensome. Right? Sometimes it feels like they're burdensome. And I think there are lots of reasons that that might be the case. Sometimes his commands feel burdensome because we do have a burden to bear, right? Jesus bore a cross and he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So there's something to carry. But the same Jesus who said that said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you or my burden on you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm gonna give you commands, but the commands aren't burdensome. Well, the commands might be burdensome because you might have grown up in a church where all you heard was command and it just sounds like this burden that you can't carry. There were people that talked like that in the first century. It could be his commands are burdensome because you have an easy time understanding Jesus is master, God is master, but don't know how to understand him as father. His commands could be burdensome because you've not been born of God, right? If you've not been born of God, what Jesus calls us to in taking up our cross is a supernatural act that can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you've not been born of God, if the life of God is not inside you, it's always going to feel like burden because no one's made righteous by the law. It could feel burdensome if you're just going, well, yeah, I know Jesus, but I wanna live however I wanna live. See, but I think when our focus is on Christ and those around us, the burden actually gets lighter because we realize it's not a burden to run to this God who loves me. It's not a burden to serve those he's called me to. when I think about this, a, a story comes to mind I read a few weeks ago about a little boy in Scotland. He was 10 years old, a couple of hundred years ago, and he had a brother who was five, and his brother's legs didn't work, and so they would go to a schoolhouse about a mile away from where they lived, and he, was, he would carry his brother on his back every day. He'd get him situated in his desk in class. He'd go outside to play a little bit before school started. And a man at the school watched him do this over and over and over. And about two years later, he's about 12, his brother's seven. The man walks up to him outside and says, son, I want you to know I see what you do. It's a heavy burden you bear and I appreciate it. And the little 12-year-old looked up at him and said, hey, mister, that's not a burden. That's my brother. And I think maybe there's something for us to, to recognize as well. Maybe sometimes... His commands feel burdensome because we treat brothers like they're burdens. See, this is the love of God that we keep his commands to love God and love people. The whole law summed up in that and his commands are not 
burdensome. It's having Jesus, it's having life, it's having supernatural life in you that flows out of you to others. And so John doesn't stop there by saying his commands are not burdensome. He says you're gonna overcome the world if you're in Christ, right? For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. He says it three times in two verses. See, it would seem like it's a really dark hour for John and the church because Rome is reigning in the world. The Jews had tried to overcome the world and it did not work. In 70 AD, Jerusalem is sacked. The temple is destroyed. And Rome brought in the peace of Rome and basically said, we've overcome Jerusalem. But John says something different. Everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. What does he mean? How did Jesus overcome the world? I think John is is evoking the words of Jesus the night before he died when he said to his disciples, in the world, you're gonna have tribulation. You're gonna have some really hard days. But be of good cheer, take heart, I have overcome the world. And then he did that, like he had done that by serving them and by laying down his life. And in his death, he made a farce of the powers and authorities who sought to snuff out the church. Why do his commands seem burdensome and why do we struggle to overcome? You struggle to overcome ever? You feel like that? I don't know if you feel like that, but I feel like that. I think there are three reasons at least that we struggle to overcome. I think that we're deceived, we're divided, and we're distracted. We're deceived. We're deceived into thinking everyone else is our biggest problem. We're deceived into thinking that the sin outside of us is greater than the sin inside of us. We're deceived into thinking we can win spiritual battles with worldly weapons. We're deceived by our fear and greed that wants to hold on to something that is very earthly, very temporal. When Jesus wants to give us life, we're deceived. We're not just deceived, we're divided. We'll divide over anything. We speak about people with a harshness, with a false exaggeration, sometimes just plain lies about people, right? There's plenty bad to say that's true usually, right? don't need to lie. Here's what divisive sin looks like in us today. It's just a reality. If there are two of you, you would argue with one another, right? We're divided. And Jesus died to bring us to God, to bring us together. We've forgotten how to listen, understand, and interact. We only listen to respond. Just a couple of lost phrases in our culture. I've never thought about that, right? You hear something you disagree with and your response is, oh, wait, I I could be wrong. I mean, that's for other people, not me, right? (laughs) We're divided. We're divided. And we could learn, all of us, to listen better and respond better. And then we're distracted. We're distracted. There are all kinds of ways we're distracted, but I want to talk today about how Satan uses this very innocuous thing to make us distracted. It's amazing that demonic forces could distract us from all God calls us to be by using a cell phone. Oh, hold on, Chase. Are you saying cell phone's evil? No, absolutely not. I'm saying that there's evil inside of us, right? 
It's not the cell phone. It could be anything. I had a, a grandmother, and we called her Mama Dear, but if I'm honest, on most, most days, she was anything but dear, right? If we walked outside today and said, oh, the weather's nice, it's a beautiful day, she's not in my house, it's cloudy, right? She could make a really good homemade corn dog, and so my cousin and I, only two grandsons, would go and eat ourselves sick at her house, but every time we walk in, Hey, Mama dear, how you doing? And she had the same response because she was doing the same thing. She said, I'm just sitting here staring at this idiot box. She's just watching TV. And so one day when I was a teenager, I said, hey, why do you call it the idiot box? And she said, oh, the box isn't an idiot. We are for staring at it all the time. <laughs> See, it's, it's an innocuous thing. But let me just ask, where do you get your porn from? Right? Where do you get your one-click shopping materialism from? You want to know my size, I'll tell you if you like to buy me something. Where, where do we show ourselves ready to divide in isolation and detachment where we don't have to look at somebody's face? We can just say whatever we want to about them. Where do we get our jealousy where we see somebody's best five minutes and we think their entire life is just steak and vacation, their kids never complain. Man, I wish I had that. It's, it's from our phone. It's from our phone. It's where we live in victimhood or bitterness or anger at those outside of us. And see, John, they didn't have cell phones in the first century, but they were deceived, they were divided, they were distracted by lies in their culture. And John wanted them to know Rome will not have final victory. Gnostics will not have final victory. The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places will not have final victory because you, if you've been born of God, you as a people will overcome. Three weeks ago, we talked a little bit about what John was saying about the Antichrist. And it was true in the first century. But listen, it's going to be true when this final man of lawlessness comes. He will not have victory. The overcoming life of God inside his people will be ultimately victorious. There are demonic forces at work in the world, in our lives, deceiving, dividing, and distracting us. And these are lies. Jesus came to forgive us and to free us from the fear of death and judgment. Take heart, he overcame the world, and we will too. Jesus came to offer a new way of being human. Rather, than being defined by what we're afraid of, we're defined by who we're loved by and who we then love. So be of good cheer. He overcame the world. Having Jesus is having life. Some of you are getting older. No offense, right? Some of you, death is so close you can hear its footsteps. Or maybe you're just at a spot where your body feels different than it did 20 years ago and you know it's coming. Who is he that overcomes the world except the one that believes that Jesus is the Christ? And here's what's true for us who believe Jesus is the Christ. Death is no longer a threat in the way that it was. It's been defeated in Christ. The signs of aging are no longer a threat, but a promise. Right? This mortal tent will give way to that which is immortal. This perishable tent will give way to that which is imperishable so we don't have to be afraid of death and judgment why 
Because he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God is the one that overcomes the world, the only one that overcomes the world. See, it's not how to live a better life. That's not how you overcome the world. It's not understanding your number and knowing how to get along. That's not how you overcome the world. You don't overcome the world through your account balance, the right career, having enough things, how you look in the mirror, absence of difficulty, great vacations and good circumstances. Because you can be doing all those things and the Roman Empire come and just raise your village to the ground. You can be doing all those things and get shot at a shopping mall. See, we get deceived, we get divided, we get distracted, and then we get defined by things done to us. And, and here's the reality. In Christ, we overcome the world, so here's the truth. Your hurt doesn't have to define your here and now, and it doesn't define who you are in Christ. To live and walk in the reality of who Jesus says you are if you have indeed been born of God. Take heart he has overcome the world. Having Jesus is having life. He came to save us from sin and, and make us who God intended us to be. He wants to display the life of God in our Wednesday morning realities. Having Jesus is having life. He didn't come to kill our desires. He came to transform them so that we might overcome the world. So we ask, what are your family distinctives and do you know what it means to overcome? And then the last question I want us to look at is, do you believe the witnesses? There are witnesses. John said he was an eyewitness to the majesty of Jesus. He saw him crucified. He saw the empty tomb. He saw and ate with the resurrected Christ. But he says, I'm not the only witness to this. He says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Well, I would tell you that 1 John 5, 6 through 8 are three of the hardest verses to understand. I'm going to tell you what I think they mean, but I also want to tell you that all Scripture is equally true, but all Scripture is not equally clear. So there are really godly people who think this means something different than I do. And we're in Christ, it's not sin to think this is, is something different than I think it means. It's a secondary issue. I see how they get the arguments they make. I wanna tell you just a couple of those and then what I think it is, okay? Some people believe water and blood refers to the sacraments, refers to baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion. That's what some people think John is referring to. I understand why they would make that argument. Some people think that water is like John 3, born of water and then born of the Spirit. Some people think that water is human birth. And I, I see why they would think that. Jesus was born of water. When a person's born, their water breaks. Kids, if you have questions about that, you call Dr. Day or you talk to mom and dad, all right? But see, I think... I think He's referring back to John chapter one. Jesus walks out into the wilderness. His cousin, John the Baptist, is baptizing people and Jesus is walking up to the crowd and John looks at him and he says, look, look, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the Messiah. This is the promised one. There he is. 
And Jesus comes to be baptized and John says, wait, I should be baptized by you. What are you doing? And Jesus says, no, let's do this to fulfill all righteousness. And he is baptized. And when he comes up out of the water, the spirit of God in this supernatural way descends on him like a dove and there's a voice from heaven. God speaks. It says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm pleased. And John's gonna call this a witness of God. So I think he's referring back to John chapter one when Jesus is baptized, but it's not just the water as a witness, the blood is as well. When Jesus died, he died, his blood was spilled to take the punishment for your sins and mine so that he would be our example, so that he would be our substitute, and so that he would defeat the powers of sin and death. The world indeed was overcome by the blood of Jesus Christ and by his resurrection. And so John is saying this man's righteous blood, fully human, fully God, who came and lived without sin and died for you and me, it testifies that he was the Christ the Old Testament was pointing to. And then he says the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. What Jesus promised in John 14 and John 16, the Holy Spirit would come. And when he rose from the dead, he breathed the Spirit on his disciples. And then in Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit fell as as they're gathered and the gospel began to spread to the nations and John says these things testify. These things testify that Jesus is the Christ. And he says there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood and these three agree. This is a significant thing in the first century Right, if you have the testimony of three witnesses, it's legally binding, it's shown as true. One of the marks of the false witnesses at Jesus' trial is that they didn't agree. And John, he says, no, these three agree. And what they're testifying to is that Jesus is the Christ, having Jesus has life. And so John asked the question of his readers. He says, if we receive the testimony of men, you receive the testimony of three witnesses, right? The testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God. He is born concerning his son. Well, what's the testimony? Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So John, he says, if you believe, right? If you believe, you have life. If you don't believe, you've made God to be a liar. Unbelief is a really big deal to John. John Stott says, unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It's a sin to be deplored. It's sinfulness lies in the fact that it contradicts the word of the one true God and attributes falsehood to him. Now you might go, well, wait, Chase. I mean, can I just, can I not have doubts at all? That's not what I'm saying. We're gonna talk about unbelief more next week, but here's the reality that we wrestle with our doubts like Jacob did. We wrestle from a place of faith rather than a place of unbelief. Because God has testified concerning his son. And so John says, this is the testimony. God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. 
And I love this word, eternal life. This word life is the Greek word zoe, life as it was intended, life that's more than just existence, life in the image of God, full of goodness and beauty and truth. It's beyond just the mindless breathing in and out while chasing dreams that never satisfy. It's eternal life. Yes, does it go on after this life, but it starts right here and now, and it changes everything. He came to give us life and give it to the fullest. You just read the gospel account. We alluded to these earlier. In John chapter two, the wedding party is not going well and Jesus turns water into wine. He changes how the celebration's gonna go. In John chapter four, he walks up to a lady who is an outcast in a village of outcasts. She's been married five times. She's living with a guy and he looks at her and he says, I know you and I've come to satisfy you in ways your brokenness can't. It's in the days of life. Tim told me a story about one of our guys this week or last week. He's out fishing. He sees a guy on the lake that doesn't know where he's going. He's sure you knew here. Kind of takes him to a good spot and they catch 53 fish together. And he says, hey, you, if you're new here, let me tell you about my church. And I think the guy came, right? Because in the stuff of life, having a good day, it's just enjoying God's goodness. In John 10, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep and I've come that you might have life and life that's full. The image of God, the exact representation of his being is saying I want to give you the humanity that you were intended to live. Here's why I came, that you might have life. It's life where we enjoy the word and sunrises, where we love to pray and we love people, where we enjoy serving and maybe hunting and gardening and giving and music and missions for believers in Christ. Supper is just as spiritual as a sermon. Charles Simeon said it this way, there are but two lessons for the Christian to learn. One is to enjoy God and everything. The other is to enjoy everything in God. Jesus came that we might have life. But he didn't just come to show us how to be human. He came to solve the biggest problem humanity has. See, sin makes us less than we were created to be. Less than fully human, it leads to death. And following Jesus brings us into God-glorifying, sustained joy living. We were intended to carry out in the first place. So whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. What John wants his readers to know and what we want you to know today is having Jesus is having life. So we're all faced with this decision in life when it comes to confronting Jesus the Christ. Do I want to remain in the realm that Jesus calls death? Or do I want to live in the realm that is truly life, that he says is eternal life? Jesus was looking at the Jews one day and Jewish leaders in John chapter five, and he said this about himself, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has passed from death to life. Have you passed from death to life today? And do you know Jesus 
Christ? Have you been born of God? If, for those of us who have, don't let life get lost in the living. Soak up every moment of joy there is to be had in Jesus. Because this life is preparing us for the next and we can't wait until he comes to take us to that one. Let's pray. Father, I pray for people in this room that have, some are brand new to the idea of church. Some have been through religious activity, but they've never been born of God. And so Lord, I pray today that you would awaken them, that they would believe and embrace Jesus as the Christ, as their Savior, as their Lord that they might have the privilege of knowing you as Father. And God, I pray for us who do, Father, that we would live out the family distinctives, that our lives would be marked by love for God, by love for people, that we would be joyful as we make disciples and teach them to obey all that you've commanded, that our lives would be about growing spirit-empowered followers for your glory in our city and all over the world. So we pray you'd be magnified in us today and throughout this week. We thank you, Lord, for this reality that having Jesus is having life. It's in his name we pray. Amen.